Well, it's good to be back with you. As I mentioned, I've been a few times here before. I think the number's up to 49 now, um, <clears throat> since 1998 when things started with the, with the church here. So we've almost gotten a full year's worth of sermons from me. So. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> over the years. Our sermon text today is going to be from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10, uh, verses, so uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. We're going to f- be focusing on the phrase that <clears throat> appears in verse 5, a body you have prepared for me, as we think about uh, our Lord Jesus Christ and his work. So, Let's ask God's blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming before you and having you speak to us. I pray that you would speak to us through your word, read and preached, that you would guide my words, that I might be faithful to you, and that you would glorify yourself and edify your people through this time that we spend in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 10. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purged would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This morning, I want us to consider that phrase from verse 5 and focus on that, that uh, a body you have prepared for me. But before we do that, I want to take a few minutes just to Uh, put all of this in context for us. Uh, It would be nice if we were arriving here after we had uh, traversed through all of Hebrews up to this point and seen all of the arguments that the apostle was making as this this message came uh, to his to the people. The purpose of the book of Hebrews appears to be as we study it uh, a message to convince Christians who were being tempted to seek relief from persecution by turning back to the ceremonies of the Old Covenant and an exhortation to them to resist that temptation 
and to hold on to Christ and the new covenant in his blood. The book makes the argument, when taken as a whole, that the former ceremonial system was inherently imperfect and impermanent because it was only a shadow anticipating the reality that was to come in Christ. Christ is superior to all the mediators under the old covenant, whether men or angels. And the new covenant in his blood is superior to the old because it is the fulfillment of what the old anticipated. Christ is the final word, the final lawgiver, the final high priest, the final sacrifice. To compromise by trying to go back or to commingle the old and the new would be to surrender everything. When we look at the, the book as a whole, I, I like the outline that uh, Philip Hughes in his commentary gives for the supremacy of Christ as it's demonstrated here. In chapter 1, he develops the, the idea that Christ is superior to the prophets, that the final word has now been spoken through Christ, that he is the word who has come, that though God spoke in, in, in various ways at various times throughout the Old Testament, in Christ, in the Son, he has sent his final word. And then Christ is superior to the angels as we move into the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then chapters 3 and 4 talk about the superiority of, of Christ to Moses as uh, the lawgiver. And the superiority of, of Christ over Aaron uh, in verses four through, or chapters 4 through 10. We see that uh, he takes a long time developing that notion that the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ is superior to that of the priesthood of Aaron. And finally, shows that Christ is superior as the, the new and living way to God, beginning at the end of uh, chapter 10 through chapter 12. And in 13, as is typical in, <clears throat> in the... Uh, in the epistles, we, we find a, a series of concluding exhortations and requests and greetings and blessings in the Lord. So we're in chapter 10, which means that we're in part of the, the segment of the book where we're looking at the superiority of Christ and his priesthood and of the sacrifices associated with it um, above the Aaronic priesthood and the Old Testament sacrifices. When we look at chapter 10, <clears throat> again, just to set ourselves in, in the, the more immediate context of chapter 10, chapter 10 talks about the way in which Christ's sacrifice has removed the Old Covenant sacrificial system and ended all sacrifice for sins because his sacrifice provided true remission of sins. His, <clears throat> his sacrifice accomplished what the earlier sacrificial system could only promise. He was the fulfillment of all that it promised. In verses 1 to 4, we see that the old sacrifices couldn't truly remove sin because if they could have, they would have stopped. If they had removed sin, they would not have needed to be repeated. And so they served as a reminder of 
sins and the need for that final sacrifice that would come in the person of the Messiah, Christ, who would come to be the sacrifice that would truly take away sin. In verses 5 through 10, we see that it was the Father's will that the old sacrifices be removed by the sacrifice of the Son, which would truly bring remission. And in order that the Son might be able to accomplish that will of the Father, He required a body that He might offer as sacrifice. And in verses 11 through 18, we see that Christ offered that one sacrifice of His body and then sat down at the right hand of the Father, indicating that His work as a sacrificing priest was completed once and for all time though he continues to make intercession for us, and that no other sacrifice remained or was required. So as we think about this and focus on this phrase, a body you have prepared for me, I want us to think about this by addressing five questions. So uh, I didn't get this in time for you to get this in the... uh, get an outline in your bulletin, but if you you want to think about the the five questions that we're going to try and answer, they are, what was prepared? Who prepared it? For whom was it prepared? For what purpose was it prepared? And who will receive the benefits of this body that was prepared? What was prepared? Who prepared it? For whom was it prepared? For what purpose was it prepared? And who will receive the benefits of this body that was prepared? So let's begin by asking the question, what was prepared? Our text today says, a body you have prepared for me. Now that could be a misleading statement if we took it out of context of the rest of Scripture. For we're not just talking about a shell that was prepared to be animated from without, but we're talking about a real incarnation. You'll remember, if you remember your church history, that the early centuries of the church and the the early councils of the church were filled with resolving disputes about the nature of Christ, about the relationship between his human nature and his divine nature, about whether he, was, he just appeared to be human or whether he uh, was a creation of God or not, or whether he was, uh, you know, the, you had all of these issues about the relationship between the members of the Trinity and the body of Christ and the natures of Christ and all of those things, how many wills does Christ have? How many natures? All of these various questions that were hammered out as the church sought to bring to bear the full message of the scriptures on who was Jesus. And when we talk about here, when the text says, a body you've prepared for me, when we look at what scripture says in its entirety, we understand That this body was not just an empty shell, not just something to be taken up and then discarded when he was done with it. But that the coming of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, involved Christ, the Son of God, becoming man and taking to himself 
as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her, and yet without sin. We can see this demonstrated for us earlier in the book of of Hebrews. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and look at verses 14 through 17, we read there, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So when we understand this body, We're not to understand it as just an empty shell or just a mechanism by which he was to accomplish his work and then be done with it. But it was a true incarnation. He took to himself a true human nature, a complete human nature. John Owen, in commenting on this in his normal um, way, gives a lengthy list of things that, uh, that mark the, uh, the nature of Christ and why it was that he had to come in our complete human nature. A few of them read like this. He, he had to come in the same nature as our nature for whom he was to work. That's the notion that we saw in Hebrews 2. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. Yet, It was a nature without the pollution that we experience due to the fall of our first father, Adam. It was a body of flesh and blood capable of being offered as a sacrifice in our place. It was a body with a living rational soul in which he might accomplish true obedience to the will of God. It was a body and soul capable of experiencing the miseries of this life itself that belonged to us as a consequence of our sins. It was a body subject to real temptation. It was a body liable to death as the just punishment of our sins which he was to bear. It was a body subject to death actually dying and therefore appropriate to be raised from the dead. It was a body and soul capable of experiencing the separation that occurs at physical death. It was a body which was visibly taken up to heaven and there remains, which is a great encouragement to our hope of resurrection. Why is it then that it just says a body? Well, there's a, there's a, a form of uh, a literary device called synecdoche that, where you take the part for the whole. And uh, that's what's going on here in this passage, perhaps. Um, but the main reason, the main, in, the, in the context, the reason that a body is mentioned as a...
opposed to going into the great detail and giving the whole explanation of the incarnation is that the focus is on sacrifice. The contrast of the sacrifice of the body in which Christ was to come uh, with the sacrifice of his body with the sacrifice of those bodies of slain beasts that were offered with their blood under the Old Testament system. Just like Paul says in Romans 12, that we're to now present our bodies as living sacrifices. He doesn't mean that, well, we don't have to present our minds, we don't have to present our thoughts, we don't have to present other aspects of ourselves. He's talking about the body as apart for the whole. We're to present our whole beings, but why bodies? Because bodies are what go on the altar. The bodies of the slain beasts are what would go on the altar in the sacrificial system. And because also the body is the way in which we manifest the actions of obedience that flow from our whole being. Christ came to be a sacrifice and he came to offer obedience to God. And it is through the body that we visibly see the demonstration of the obedience that is being offered unto our God. So, what was prepared? Our text says a body, and we understand by that that a a full, complete human nature was, was being prepared for the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, who prepared it? Well, Again, if we, we look at our text and, and, and we see that it's talking primarily, it's emphasizing in the passage that the preparation was a preparation of the Father, a body that was prepared for the Son in which he might accomplish true obedience that was required by the law and might become a sacrifice for our sins. The emphasis in the passage is on the Father's provision of what was necessary to accomplish His own will and the Son's agreement to assume that body in order to accomplish that will. Again, this is not a complete description of everything that's going on in the Incarnation, but this is the focus. He says, a body you prepared for me, and behold, I've come to do your will, O God. Again, the focus is on the Father's preparation of the body and the Son's assumption of that body as He came into the world to to fulfill the will of God. The Father prepared it, Owen says, in the ordering of all things. The Holy Ghost actually wrought it and the Son Himself assumed it. In the same instant of time, this body was prepared by the Father, assumed by the Son, and wrought by the Holy Ghost. Once again, as we study what the Scripture says about the Incarnation and the way it happens, we remember those, those passages from uh, Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel where it describes <clears throat> the birth of Christ. In Matthew 1.18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, emphasizing the work of the Spirit in, uh, in creating the body, in, in, uh, in bringing the body uh, to be in the womb of the Virgin Mary. In Luke's Gospel, 
we read, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not uh, know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. So we can see that while the emphasis in this passage is on the Father's work in preparing the body, we see as Scripture teaches us that the incarnation of Christ involved both the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit, and the Son in assuming that body. We see that truly He came into the world. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And this of course, presupposes an agreement between the the members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in determining this plan of redemption for the people of God and bringing it to pass through this body that God has prepared for Christ. So then, let's look at the third question. For whom was it prepared? You might say, well... The answer seems obvious. The answer is Jesus. It was prepared for Christ. Very true. But, once again, remember if you remember your church history, there's been a lot of debate about what this meant. Did, you know, there was, uh, you know, was the body prepared for a pre-existing person? You know, in the normal course of human life, normal human beings... The person and the body begin at the same time. As God gives life in that union when conception takes place, we are not as human beings pre-existent souls who've been floating around out in the ether somewhere and come and find a body to inhabit. We are normally regardless of what of the various orthodox positions on exactly how it all happens um, in the history of, of the debate in the church as to, as to how that all happens and, and whether God is actively or has already ordered it. I'm not going to go into all those kinds of details. We, we believe that humans begin, the person begins at the same time as all of is their body, their soul, their spirit. We all begin in an instant. That conception as God gives life in the womb. But here we have something different. We have a person who existed from all eternity, the divine Son of God, who takes to himself a human nature, a complete human nature that has begun to exist. So for whom was it prepared? It was prepared for a person who already existed. God the Son, the Word, who had been with the Father from the beginning. Who had enjoyed fellowship with the Father and Spirit from the beginning. As the second person of the Trinity. So when we say for whom was it prepared, it was prepared for God the Son. That person took to himself in a permanent union of two natures, his divine nature 
and His human nature. He became truly the, the God-man. One who is both fully God and fully man. In one person. In John 1, you remember, John 1 begins with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of that first chapter of John, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. He already existed. He was a person who existed as part of the, the divine Godhead who came down to take to himself that body that had been prepared. And this was a permanent union of the two natures in one person. How do we know that? Well, it's demonstrated to us by the fact that he was raised bodily, he ascended bodily, and he's promised to come back bodily. That body has been permanently made apart, united to the eternal Son of God. He is true God and true man in one person. Again, from the 21st question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continueth to be, God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So you might ask the question, as many people have, well, well, doesn't that somehow limit the eternal Son of God that now he has this human nature? Does it compromise his divine nature? Let me read to you from <clears throat> uh, Athanasius one of those early saints who battled through many of these uh, debates and divisions within the church about the incarnation and the, uh, the person and nature of Christ. He says, The word was not hedged in by his body, nor did he, his presence in the body prevent him being present elsewhere as well. When he moved his body, he did not cease also to direct the universe by his mind and might. No, the marvelous truth is that being the word so far from being himself contained by anything, he actually contained all things in himself. In creation, he is present everywhere, yet distinct in being from it. Ordering, directing, giving life to all, containing all, yet he himself is the uncontained existing solely in his Father. As with the whole, so is it with the part. Existing in a human body to which he himself gives life, he is still source of life to all the universe, present in every part of it, yet outside the whole. And he is revealed both in the works of his body and through his activity in the world. His body was for him not a limitation, but an instrument, so that he was both in it and in all things and outside all things, resting in the Father alone. At one and the same time, this is the wonder. As man, he was living a human life, and as word, he was sustaining the life of the universe. And as son, he was in constant union with the Father. You can find that in uh, Athanasius' book on the Incarnation. Good book to read sometime if you have time. It's a short book. It's not long. 
but it's full of good things. So then, fourthly, we ask the question, for what purpose was it prepared? And I think everyone, when they look at the passage, would say, well, obviously, it's for the purpose of him being able to be offered as a sacrifice. And that's true. That is the particular focus, but there is in this passage a more general direction that we need to give consideration to. That is the notion of obedience. He says, to do your will, O God, is why I have come. I've come to do your will. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. You may recall that there's another passage in the Old Testament that talks about sacrifice and offering not being what God desired. Um, you recall the, the passage in Samuel where uh, he says that you know, God doesn't desire burnt offerings. He doesn't take pleasure in those things, but in obedience. And it's true and something that we need to understand that obedience is one of the is the one of the great organizing principles organizing thoughts of of why Christ came into the world he came to do the will of god to do the will of the father to accomplish the work which the father had given him again quote in quote talking about this uh, John Owen says, the general end of his having a body was that he might therein and thereby yield obedience or do the will of God. And the special end of it was that he might have somewhat to offer in sacrifice unto God. So as we think about answering this question for what purpose it was prepared, I want to look at two things. One, the general purpose of offering obedience. If you've never read it, there's a, there's a little book by John Murray uh, on uh, the atonement. It's called Redemption Accomplished and Applied. And it, it deals with the whole question of, uh, of Christ's death and what it was intended to do and what it did and hence accomplished and applied and how it gets applied in our lives. Um, in that book, <clears throat> Murray asks the question, uh, when we think about atonement, how, what is the... What is the most general level of an organizing principle that we can come up with as we think about it from scriptures? Because the Bible talks about atonement in lots of ways. It talks about it as sacrifice. It talks about it as propitiation. It talks about it in a number of ways. But he concludes that the, the unifying and integrating principle that, that pulls everything together at sort of the highest, most generic level is the principle of obedience. That Christ came into the world to offer obedience to his Father. For example, in Romans 5.19, we read, For by as one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Even if you go back to Isaiah 53 and that, that passage about the, the suffering servant who's coming, how is the Redeemer portrayed? How is Christ portrayed? 
He's portrayed as a servant who comes to do God's will. As one who comes and of whom it can be said that the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In Isaiah 53, 10. Jesus makes it clear in John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And in Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, we read that he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And once again, earlier in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, we read, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. It's traditional to talk about this obedience in in terms of the active obedience of Christ that refers to his perfectly fulfilling all the requirements of the law. And to talk about the passive obedience of Christ, which refers not to some sort of involuntariness about it, but to the suffering that is involved in it. His passion, his suffering. It refers to his removal of our guilt by taking away the, taking the curse and the condemnation of sin upon himself and bearing the penalty for us. But the focus overall in, in Scripture is on the, the, the way in which Christ, through his life of obedience, that required him to have a true human nature, a complete human nature, in which he could offer both the obedience of fulfilling the law and the obedience of suffering the penalty for our sake. The particular focus, obviously, in Hebrews is on that atoning sacrifice that brings an end to the old system by the true, final, and substantial sacrifice of his body in order to once and for all put away sin and open a new and living way to God. Again, in in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we didn't read this far, but when you begin at verse 12, it says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, and from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. He has become that offering for sin. Once again, to quote from Athanasius from On the Incarnation, he says, Wherefore the Word, as I said, being himself incapable of death, 
assumed a mortal body that he might offer it as his own in place of all, and suffering for the sake of all through his union with it, might bring, him, bring to naught him that hath the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver them who through all their lifetime were enslaved by the fear of death. He is the new and living way to God, as Hebrews 10.20 tells us. So then let's ask our final question. Who will receive the benefits of this body that was prepared for Christ? The body in which he came and offered himself as a sacrifice for sins. The body in which he fulfilled all the requirements of God's law that in union with him we might experience both being pleasing to God because of the work that Christ has done in keeping the law and being free from the penalty that our sins deserve in the work that he did in giving himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Who will receive this? Well, going back to that same passage that we looked at a couple of times in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him will receive all of the benefits that Christ has accomplished in that body that was prepared for him as he came into the world in his incarnation. If we just look at Hebrews chapter 10, who are those who receive the benefits? Those who are sanctified who have been sanctified by the work of Christ in dying. In verse 22, those who draw near with a sincere heart in faith. In verse 23, those who hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. In verse 36, those who do the will of God. In verse 38 and 39, those who do not shrink back. Those who come by faith to embrace Christ and are kept by the Father in His love. What is our conclusion then? Whatever was prepared in the will of God for the good of the church, it is all communicated unto us through the offering of the body of Christ, in such a way as tendeth unto the glory of God and the assured salvation of the church. The manner of this offering was once for all, once only, and no more. This demonstrates the dignity and the efficacy of his one sacrifice. Once again, quoting John Owen. As the sacrifice of Christ in the one body prepared for him has put an end to the old system of repeated sacrifices that served as a repeated remembrance of the sins which could not be atoned by the blood of bulls and goats, yet he has not left us 
in the new covenant without the repeated remembrance of his one sacrifice in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. In it we draw near by faith and feed upon Christ's body and blood given for us. Not as though we consume his physical body, but as we eat the bread and drink the wine given to us by Christ as the signs and seals of his grace to us accomplished in that one body. Let us fix these truths in our minds as we, as we prepare to approach his table by faith.